0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Big Green Egg, the world's largest producer of ceramic charcoal grills. And also by Springer Mountain Farms, over 300 family farms raising birds in Georgia's Blue Ridge Mountains. Learn more at biggreenegg.com and springermountainfarms.com. Welcome oh, back wow. to
2: Heritage Radio Network.
3: Nice. Thank you for having us. <laughs>
2: Thank you okay, to my guest here? for the uh, song oh sound check. We haven't had one of those all day. Georgia, we are broadcasting Georgia. live from Go, Georgia. the Charleston Georgia. Wine and Food Festival in Charleston, South Carolina. This is our third and final day of live broadcasts, and we've been so happy to be here with you all weekend. Broadcasting from the teepees in the Culinary Village, Wanna give a big shout out to our sponsors, Springer Mountain Farms and Big Green Egg. Yeah. <laughs> Crowd's getting rowdy, this is good. We're glad to have you all here. Thank you. I'm really pleased to introduce two very special guests now. I have with me Matthew Rayford, the chef farmer, and Javon Sage, resident alchemist of the Farmer and the Larder. Welcome, Matthew and Javon. Great. Thank, Thank you. you
4: for having Thank us. Thank you for having us.
2: Thanks for being here. So, Javon Sage has one of the best job titles in the business. She is the resident alchemist, pickler, fermenter, and jam maker at the Farmer in the Larder in Brunswick, yeah. Georgia. She has a lot of fans in the house. She owns the restaurant along with Matthew Rayford. Matthew is a classically trained CIA chef who has returned to Brunswick and is now a sixth generation farmer on his family's land at Jilliard Farms. Um, so I would love to start out with you just telling a little bit of the backstory, how you went back to farming and started up the Farmer in the Larder.
3: Oh wow! Um, <laughs> which part do you want first? Begin, at the, or the begin, begin at the beginning, or the beginning of the beginning? Well, uh, I had this conversation a while back. Um, for years, my um, grandmother, my mother, and my aunt, when we'd sit down and have these conversations about this family land that we have, they would always go, so what are we going to do with all this land? And I was like, y'all ought to go back to farming because that's what y'all know how to do. (laughs) Um, And uh, that went on for some years. And in 2010, uh, my sister and I were at a family reunion. We hadn't seen anybody in like 20 years um, because I promised myself I wouldn't even come back to the South for real. And so... Uh, we're sitting down, and my grandmother looks at my sister and I and goes, so, baby, mm, we got all this land right here. What we gonna do? And I was like, Nana, I think we should go back to farming. And she, baby, did you say we? And I said, yes, ma'am. No, no, did you say we? And I said, yes, ma'am. I said we. Okay, they reached underneath the table and gift-deeded my sister and I 28 acres and was wow. like, Okay, make it happen. Wow. So that was kind of like the start of that. Like, oh goodness, I just tied myself in, like, to possibly coming back. So um, I, uh, at the time, I was the executive chef for Hope Catering Company, which is the premier catering company at the House of Representatives in Washington D.C. And uh, I bowed out of that job there and went to UC Santa Cruz to the Center for Agroecology and sustainable food systems, so I have a background in ecological horticulture. And then um, in 2012, uh, I decided, um, or I had the opportunity um, to actually go to Torino, Italy, um, to the Slow Food Terra Madra and Salon Gusto conference that was happening at that particular time, and I ended up meeting uh, the love of my life now, Javon Sage, (laughs) which is kind of an interesting thing. I went all the way to Torino Italy for that but anyway he
4: had to import me I had
3: to import her kind of a thing And uh, so that was like the beginning of like us and doing events. So I'll let Javon talk about the farm and the larder and rainstorms.
2: And Javon, if you could tell us first how you ended up in Torino at Slow Food.
4: Yes. um, Well, I actually used to be the director of network engagement for Slow Food USA. Um, So I worked with the mothership. um, And my job was to run around the country and the globe working with local chapters across everywhere. So, you know, I've had a chance to go to Italy a, a few times, Amsterdam, and, and everywhere else in between. Um, and, you know, for me, I lived in New York City for seven years. I was doing a lot of food justice work in addition to running um, cafes and gourmet markets. So for me, you know, going and doing that kind of food and farming advocacy on a global scale was just too delicious to pass up. Wow. So if you could tell us about the origin story of The Farmer and the Larder. Absolutely. Well, you know, I've done a lot of work for nonprofits. And one of the things I do is I help nonprofits kind of you know, figure out what their vision for what they do. Like, what does that look like? How does it happen? You know, what are the dreams? What are the hopes? And what's the realities? And so, you know, I was, I think it was a day long, two days meeting um, that Matthew and I had over the phone. So he was down in Brunswick. I was up in my, my tiny room in Brooklyn, um, you know, sitting down and saying, okay, What is it that you love to do? What is it that I love to do? We love food. We love wine. We love, you know, having fun. We love educating. We love doing taste education. Um, So for him with the farmer and me, you know, I have my own business called Sage's Larder. We just kind of brought that together. We're like, the farmer and the larder. It fits. It works. What are we going to do first? And so what we did is we did a summer wine tasting um, on the farm.
3: You got to tell her about that summer wine tasting. (laughs)
4: So it was threatening rain, which often happens in the deep south, especially on our farm. We're subtropical, so we're Zone Nine A, which is as hot as it can be before you get to Florida. Um, And so we did the summer wine tasting. So we're thinking, you know, rosés. We're thinking rieslings. We're just thinking like nice, fun, tasty things. Yeah, but. There was a threat of rain. So we decided to rent a tent. You never know. And in the middle of this wine tasting, we had about 20 to 25 people out there. There was this sun shower. So the sun was just as bright as bright can be, and the rain just poured.
3: So really quick, (laughs) are you familiar with, like, southern sun sun showers at all?
2: I grew up in Maine, so unfortunately I don't think I've ever (laughs) experienced a southern sun shower. Okay, so let's
3: just let's say... So the sun is, like, as bright as it can possibly be. And then it's storming, like, thunderstorm, lightning, yes, flash. Yes. Like, all that is happening all at once. And it's only for about 15 minutes. Yeah. But it's, like, torrential. Like, you're like, oh, my God. You know, you want to be Chicken Little right now. You know, the it's sky like is falling. It's like run for cover? Yes, yeah, run okay, for cover kind yeah. of a thing. So, yeah. <laughs> instead
4: what happened is that people started kicking off... Like, the women started kicking off their heels. The men started kicking off their loafers. They started rolling up their pants. And they're like, we know it's flooding, but guess what? We're only halfway through this wine tasting, so we're going to ride it out with you. All right. This sounds so. like Woodstock. Oh, yeah. Oh, it yeah. was. It was like
3: <laughs> wine Woodstock in the South.
4: Yes. Yes. So so we were just like, we've got something here. And we're having a ton of fun. And, of course, the food was delicious. and And so we're just like... We, but, you know, you don't want to be at the mercy of Mother Nature year round when you're trying to do events. So I call ourselves kind of like accidental restaurant tours, um, because initially we only wanted to open an event space. Um, and it kind of grew to where the first space we selected was too small. Everybody was like, you've already grown out of it and you haven't even started construction to being like, okay, we have this bigger space. So what do we do with that? guess what we do Sunday brunch we do dinner we do dinner parties we have wine tastings and so we just have fun with it. we also do culinary classes so for us it was just like it became this place to like play and to connect people to the things that we're passionate about when it comes to food and wine
2: how many nights a week are you doing dinner now
4: So we do dinner – well, actually, we do dinner three nights a week. Um, Thursdays is going to be our special thing. We're actually relaunching our Thursday dinners to being our our at-our-table dinners. So one seating, one price, one menu, 6.30 every Thursday starting on – uh, was it March 17th? March 16th. Is it 16th? Okay, awesome. Um, so, yeah, so we're, we're wanting to, you know, now that we've been open for the last 18 months, we're like, let's try some different things, things that we wanted to do at the beginning, but we weren't so sure that our town was ready for for tasting menus of, of that scale. Um, so we're, we're relaunching that, and then we do dinners, um, regular dinners, Friday and Saturday, and then Sunday brunch. Yeah. And
2: you mentioned that the food education that you do is just as important as the food that you're serving. Can you talk a little bit about why that is and how you go about educating people about the food in your restaurant?
4: Absolutely. So for both of us, I mean we met over food. Um, if anyone doesn't know what Terra Madre and Salone del Gusto is, but every two year every two years, Slow Food puts on a huge international party. Um, about 200,000 people come through over five days. We're talking farmers from Africa, lardo producers from Italy, you know, folks who are like seventh, eighth, tenth generation charcuterie makers um who are coming together to talk about this thing we call our food system. So what does good, clean and fair food mean to everybody and how do we ensure that we're paying farmers fairly, that you know, we're having delicious food, that we're promoting local heritage heirloom varieties of both, you know, produce and animals.
3: And what does that mean when you completely put that into a full system? Yeah.
2: Yeah. And when we were talking earlier, we talked a little bit about what it means to buy and source sustainably for the events that you're doing, for the meals that you're serving, what does that mean for you in your community, in your hometown?
3: Yeah, um, I mean, a lot of times, like, when people get and start talking about local, I mean, for me, there's such thing as being uber local, which means, like, that just came from, like, 50 miles around your house kind of a thing. Um, When we think about local, we've actually had to sit down and realize that local for us has to do with the locality of where we are. So we are exactly 29 miles from the Florida state line. I can get to Orlando, Florida faster than I can get to Atlanta from where I am. So when we think about our food... And Charleston. And Charleston. Yeah, we can even get to Charleston faster, which is where we are. Um, (laughs) So because of that, I can pull food from all of those areas and still be within a three-hour radius of where I am and still be with under... Under 200 miles, 250 miles of where I am. So I think that, like, when people think about local and sustainable, that they need to really think about their location and really what all is encompassing of where they actually are. I mean, we're also a port city, and so our food is indicative of, of a port city uh, a restaurant um, per se, and and our food is very much so that because um, Brunswick is like a is one of the original five ports that Washington set up. So we have food that we do everything from, uh, well, and I digress. The Spaniards were the first ones to hit the Georgia coast um, prior. So we have Fort Federica there. So we do Spanish tapas all the time. And I remember when we first opened, someone happened to say, well, why would you do Spanish food here? And I was like, wait, wait. So historically, you know where we are. They're like, yes. They were like, but why would you do, why would you do Spanish tapas? I was like, historically, you know where we are. Like, the Osabawa hawk that we have is because of the Spaniards, right? And they're, like, a Spanish goat, you know that. And so, like, we have those kinds of conversations, which actually gets people to start thinking about, like, food and, like, where things actually came from. Like, why are we actually eating and have some of those breeds here? And from a seafood standpoint, I mean, we're a port city. When I say we got some of the most amazing seafood that comes in, like, Mm -hmm. I can get everything within... I can get everything.
4: Yeah, and also Except the for, where you know, where we're located. We're in our restaurant is in historic downtown Brunswick, and so our restaurant two blocks away from our restaurant is the river. Is the river? Fifteen minutes away is the ocean. Right. So for us to not have fresh seafood it would is, be it make any ridiculous. Sense. Right.
3: And the and the boats pull up like one block from where where our restaurant sits. The dock is right there. So you know. Um, uh, Frank Owens from City Market. Like, I can literally walk down there to his boats and go, "Can I get those shrimp right there? Can I get that line caught sea trout that he just had?" So, I think the you know, based on where we are, is is how our food is. I think if I was inland, that's what what my food would be like. Also,
2: is you, the way that you're doing sourcing typical in Brunswick, or are you doing something differently? And if so, what advice would you have for? your neighbors about how to get into some, sourcing some ingredients more locally?
4: I mean, I think the the exciting thing for us, you know, since we are, you know, we are farmers um, and we're also food and farming advocates. So I think we've also challenged our local restaurants to start sourcing more from farms. So, you know, b- before I moved down there from Brooklyn, um, you know, I would look and, I'd, you know, kind of see what people's menus were and people weren't really promoting the fact that they were getting food from local farmers well guess what i've lived there over two years now and you know everyone's got an instagram post saying you know xyz farmer this farmer this this fisherman and so i think we've kind of like upped the level of people's consciousness around let's talk about this this is something to celebrate this is something to promote and and it's how we keep jobs in our area it's how we keep you know, this this heritage of growing, um, you know, if you think about and I was talking about this at a fuller bill of fare earlier today than that Fuller luncheon today was that, you know, you think about the South. The South is where agriculture really started to manifest in in the U.S. So when you think about American food, you're thinking about Southern food. You're thinking about southern growing seasons. Um, in Brunswick, we can grow 10 months out of the year. And here in Charleston, what is it, eight months out eight of the year? Eight months
3: at least, at a minimum.
4: So, yeah, so yeah. we have these really great opportunities to to grow our own food and to promote that at every step of the way.
3: And, you know, some of the heritage seeds that that are available right now that, are, that can grow in our very specific climate. So people always kind of ask us, like, well, how come you don't grow this and how come you don't have this on your menu? And I was like... Well, one, it doesn't grow well for Mm -hmm. me, for me, Um, and I'm not really in an area to actually do that. So we do Sea Island red peas because we're on a silty, sandy loam, very unfertile soil. But guess what? Sea Island red peas like growing in unfertile soil. So guess what I grow? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like thinking about our food sources and what we can do with it, and then also taking that, like, all those other little things that happen, like Midlands, you know what I'm saying, and, like taking that and going saying, okay, I could make this with it, but let me kind of make it a little creamy like a risotto. So we do a lot of that inside of our restaurant.
2: And Matthew, you've been, your family has had this land that you're farming now for six generations. That's something really special, and I was wondering if you could talk about the significance of being on that land and whether or not you're growing some of the kind of maybe some of the same heirloom crops that were once grown there, or if you're doing something different with that land than your ancestors were doing?
3: Well, different, I cannot say that I'm doing at all. I, I might have started off thinking I was going do to do something different, but I haven't even come close to trying. Um, we uh, w- when, we got, when I had the chance to come back home, one of my first thought processes was that I was going to plant an orchard because, you know, a man plants an orchard not for himself, but for his children or his children's children. Um, and uh, that didn't quite work out for me. And part of it had to do with, like, what I planted. So um, I had uh, the fortune, my grandmother was alive at the time, and she happened to say to me, she was like, baby, I got this letter right here that you might want to look at. And I was like, well, what letter is it? Well, your grandmama, well, no, your great-grandmama sent me this letter. So we now actually have and that we use is the letters that my great grandmother sent my grandmother of what they were planting or harvesting. We now use as our farmer's almanac kind of wow, a piece. That's so, amazing. Um, we've, I mean yeah, I mean it's it's amazing, especially when you like open the letter and it was written like 1939, mm-hmm. this is what they were planting in 1945. And at yeah, and selling at market mm-hmm. also. So we we've we've went away from like trying to grow you know, chioga beets and all this other stuff and now we plant collards and we plant and we we plant which I didn't even know so my my great grandparents actually planted what they call summer collards and their summer collards they actually use as small leaf like in salads and just like eating very very quickly almost like you were sautéing arugula or spinach or something like Uh that and then collard greens like the big green itself that you let go in the winter, um, they used in like fest- festive types of eating and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting, like actually digging back into my family and finding out those things. I mean, the land's been in my family since 1874. I'm the sixth generation, and my children are the seventh to have wow. planted, harvested, and eaten from a crop off of that land. So yeah, I mean it, it. I mean it says a lot. Like, and you know, I you know, I tout that I'm a chef farmer. I'm um, a chef and a farmer. And and part of that is because we own the land, we own the restaurant, like we own all of it. I mean, we even have the and on our property is the original schoolhouse, which was built in 1907. So from 1907 to 1955, it was the only schoolhouse that folks of African descent could ever go to. So we have all of that on our property from a historical perspective. A it lot means a of lot. So you know, the farm to school program for us dates back to 1907. Wow. You know what I'm saying? So. <laughs> That's how we look at and ancestrally, like how I have to make sure that those things continue to happen within my lifetime, my children's lifetime and their children's children. Mm-hmm.
2: And that brings me to the question that I always like to wrap up with is that I you guys are doing so much work. You work with slow food, you work with a lot of organizations in the food justice, sustainability space. I want to give you a chance to give big ups to an organization or someone in your community or around the country or the world who's just doing great work.
4: Yeah, so I'll, I'll go ahead and go. Um, there's, there's two organizations that I do a lot of work with. One nationally is Seed Savers Exchange. I'm actually on the board of directors for Seed Savers Exchange um, because I love the work that they're doing. You know, one, you can just go buy seeds if you just want heirloom, open pollinated seeds. But the money that you know you spend on those seeds actually goes towards the education and seed saving that happens right there at the heritage farm um so for me going to decora iowa and seeing the work that they're doing and how that has a a national and now an international because we're actually at the international um seed bank so so They're just doing amazing things to tell those stories about where our seeds come from and why they're important. Um, Locally, I'm actually the co-chair of our local Slow Food chapter, so Slow Food Coastal Georgia. Um, So for me you know, taking the work that I was doing in New York City and internationally and, you know, bringing that locally. Um, So we're talking about good, clean and fair food. We're talking about garden programs in the school. We're talking about promoting farmers markets. So for me, that's something that's still close to my heart um, here in the South.
3: And I think for me, the two organizations would be, I know you said a organization or whatever, But the two organizations for me would be uh, SAFON, which is the Southeastern African-American Farmers Organic Network. Um, They have been extremely instrumental in getting over 126 African-American farmers organically certified um, and understanding what it takes to move from having been conventional to organics. And I think for the South and the Southern region, that means a lot. And from a national perspective, I'm on the board of directors for Chef's Collaborative. And uh, they have definitely started to guide that sustainability to like that next level for next generation to carry it forward and i think as chefs um restaurateurs and foodies as a whole like to move forward it's great to be in the present and get the accolades that you have right now but thinking about the next generation is what we have to think about to make sure this craft continues so that this is like 12 more years from now right so that's what i would say
2: Thank you so much. I could talk to you both for hours, and I wish we could stay here longer. Can you tell our listeners where to find you online on social media so they can find out more about the farmer and the larder and about you both?
4: awesome well you can find us online at farmerandlarder.com um and you can also find us on instagram we're just farmer larder um and facebook the same farmer larder so we we try to make it super simple for folks um but yeah that's farmer and larder it's f-a-r-m-e-r-a-n-d-l-a-r-d-e-r.com Thank you so much. It's been such Thank a treat you. to talk to Matthew Rayford and
2: Javon Sage, the farmer and the larder. Everybody, please check them out. Thank you both for joining Thank us. You. Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again. We are Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station based in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I want to give a shout out to our sponsors, Big Green Egg and Springer Yay. Martin Farms Chicken. And uh, we are going to take a short break, and we will be right back. Thanks for staying with us.
1: This episode is brought to you by Big Green Egg, the world's largest producer of ceramic charcoal grills. In business since 1974, they've transformed ancient cooking vessels into modern-day masterpieces. Today, they sell seven sizes of the egg, as well as hundreds of accessories designed to make your cooking fun, entertaining, and delicious. Often copied but never equaled, the Big Green Egg is the ultimate cooking experience. Learn more at biggreenegg.com. This episode is also brought to you by Springer Mountain Farms. Over 300 family farmers raising birds in Georgia's Blue Ridge Mountains. Many of them are second and even third generation. They're committed to doing things the right way. Springer was one of the first poultry companies to forego the use of antibiotics, and they've embraced other humane practices too. In fact, they were the first poultry company to earn the American Humane Association seal of approval. Learn more at springermountainfarms.com.